The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and I welcome you to our program on Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. We are coming to you from Voice America. Today's discussion is on depression in the elderly and how that interplays with cognitive change. Our guest is Dr. David Crumpacker. Dr. Crumpacker received his medical degree from Cornell University Medical College in New York City before completing a residency in general psychiatry at the UT Southwestern Medical School in Dallas. He then completed a two-year fellowship in geriatric psychiatry at UT Southwestern. Dr. Crumpacker's research interests include Lewy body disease, interestingly because our program next week is on Lewy body disease, and the ApoE4 gene in Alzheimer's disease. He has been recognized by both D Magazine and Texas Monthly as an outstanding physician. He is the former assistant chief of the Department of Psychiatry at Baylor Medical Center in Dallas and is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, double-boarded in adult psychiatry and geriatric psychiatry. Recently, Dr. Crumpacker participated as a consultant on the Texas treatment algorithm for Alzheimer's disease. My friend, Dr. Crumpacker, welcome to the program. Sam, thank you very much for having me. It is uh, an honor for me to have you on the show, and I know that our listeners will be very grateful to you for share, for taking the time, uh, sharing your knowledge and your experience. Um, I was joking with you before we came on that I wasn't sure which language we should speak in for this program. Dr. Crumpacker is an amateur linguist, as he describes himself, with proficiency in Spanish, French, Russian, Mandarin, Hindi, classical Greek, Latin, and a little bit of English. So <laughs> I, I want to get my hands on your brain one day, David. I want to see what makes this thing work so well. <laughs> well, David, depression is something that everybody talks about, uh, but not a lot of people have a real deep understanding of. Could you define depression for us? Certainly. Sam, it is, first of all, never normal to be depressed. Depression is never the natural end point of any medical illness, any situation in life. Sometimes I think in, in English we uh, get very um, flippant with emotionally charged words, whether it's depression, whether it's love. Uh, we use those words kind of interchangeably and without making a distinction of the nuance of it. And when I talk about As in, I love my wife and I love ice cream, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You can love New York City and the Dodgers, but that's certainly not the same type of love that you have for your wife. 
the same, I think, with depression. And, you know, wouldn't you agree that many people might say the world situation is depressing, but that's certainly not what I mean when I talk about depression. And when, when I talk about it, I, I like to reserve it for a, uh, a medical phenomenon that has a constellation of symptoms that, that responds to, to interventions. So would you go over what some of those symptoms are? Certainly. What we do is we like to, to recognize a number of them. And when I, I do a lot of work with the medical students, with the residents, the fellows, and when we talk about depression, I like them to generally make some comment about someone's mood, uh, whether it's sad, whether it's uh, pervasively down, or perhaps that they uh, have a uh, uh, kind of an inability to be excited or or find pleasure in things that they had otherwise found pleasure in. So one would be mood, right? Ab- absolutely. And as a mood disorder, we generally think of it that way, that we'd like to start with some comment about the mood. Uh, and, you know, people can experience that mood differently, even at different stages of life. And that's why I'm glad we're, we're talking about that today. As an example, uh, you know, it, a teenager might not come up to you and say, you know, I'm not experiencing life the way I feel I should experience it. I'm not getting the privilege and excitement that I think I'm entitled to, as opposed to maybe hanging with the wrong crowd or being with the wrong crowd. Or likewise, maybe a senior might be experiencing it more physically, uh, maybe where uh, more physical complaints, complaining of pain and discomfort. Uh, but all of those things, I think, can fit, fit into the mood spectrum. Okay. Now, there are a number of different diagnoses that come under the heading of depression, aren't there? They sure are. Would you discuss those and how one might be different from another? Sure. Under depression, we like to think of a major depressive disorder. And in a major depressive disorder, people have a, are currently in an episode of depression where some of the symptoms that we had talked about earlier, you know, the mood, are present, but also sometimes people can have problems with concentration. People can have problems with memory. People can have problems with, uh, we call them some vegetative symptoms, and that's just a jargon term, which means sleep, maybe appetitive changes like appetite, uh, motoric changes like uh, feeling restless and moving around or maybe feeling lethargic, uh, symptoms like that, even progressing to the point of being hopeless and helpless, and sometimes even thoughts of death and suicide in, in more extreme situations. We, we like to think of uh, those constellation of symptoms within a two-week period is probably enough to diagnose a depressive episode. And sometimes people have told me they thought two weeks isn't long enough, but certainly, as you can imagine, having any of those symptoms for an extended period of time, certainly two weeks can be quite debilitating. I can see that it would be. So that's what we like to do is if somebody's in that episode, it's how episodes frequently fit together that we determine a diagnosis so that if one person, if a patient, for example, has one episode of of that depression and never again any other episodes or no previous episodes, then we'd like to say that person has a major depressive disorder single episode as opposed Mm -hmm. to people who might have varying episodes over the course of their entire lives where maybe an episode for a period of time that gets well-treated and then a a period of remission followed by another episode, and that person would have a recurrent episode of depression. Uh Uh-huh. 
other examples then might be something like um, uh, in the DSM-4, which is about to become obsolete, an adjustment disorder with depression. How would that be different from a major depressive disorder? Sure. And as, as you're talking about adjustment disorders, people can have varying adjustment disorders for a variety of situations, whether a breakup or the loss of a job or sometimes even things that might be uh, thought of as good stress, like getting a job or starting school, suddenly adjusting to it. And people can adjust to it with you know, varying degrees of symptoms. Sometimes people can have an adjustment disorder where they experience that with a depressed mood. And usually in, in that situation, it's related particularly to that event, say like the breakup, that someone mm-hmm. had not had a history of it, uh, except associated with that breakup or maybe with that loss of a job, things like that. So those are some things that we, we think about in an adjustment disorder. And sometimes people can experience it with anxiety, maybe even panic, uh, but a more common one would be in depression. What about the depression that is seen in bipolar disorder? Say that again, Sam. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. Um, yes. Um, how would how would you differentiate the uh, depression that is seen in bipolar disorder, as an example? Certainly, bipolar disorder is a mood disorder, and I get asked that a lot. Sometimes from the medical students, or sometimes internists will ask me, or even patients, what is the difference between a depressive disorder, the depressive episode in bipolar disorder, and in depression, and. Uh, for your you know, listeners' benefits, we think of in bipolar disorder where people will have episodes of depression and then episodes of, of mania. Uh, unfortunately, DSM doesn't necessarily help us out too much with the differences between those depressive episodes. It really is the history. So a patient with bipolar disorder can experience, can have a depressive episode that's totally similar to somebody with, with just simple major depression. What is different is the history. And all someone needs for a diagnosis of bipolar disorder is that uh, at some point they've had an episode of mania or hypomania, and then the diagnosis forever is bipolar disorder. Now, David, you... uh are bordered in adult psychiatry and geriatric psychiatry. Um, Can you discuss with our audience how those two are different? Certainly. It it, it is interesting, and and Sam, I think you'd you'd recognize as we talk of human development that uh, certainly some uh, early thinkers in our field thought that development stopped at 18 and that after 18, people didn't change and people didn't develop at all once someone had reached past puberty and reached some sexual maturity. And we, we certainly know that that's not the case at this point, that development occurs throughout someone's lifespan. And the uh, field of geriatric psychiatry is, is kind of burgeoning at this point uh, in an exciting way of looking about how depression not only impacts seniors differently, from the way depression impacts younger people, but also how seniors experience that depression uh, and how they can experience it differently from younger people. We will go into more detail than that uh, on that topic. Uh, we have uh, a break coming up in about a minute and a half or so, but um, talk briefly about what the term that used to be used called depressive pseudodementia. Certainly. Pseudodementia was a term coined in the early 60s by an Australian psychiatrist, and his whole point in that was to get uh, clinicians to think 
of reversible symptoms of dementia. And as I'd mentioned before, if uh, depression can impact cog- uh, cognition, it can impact concentration and memory. His fear was that frequently in the aged, people would simply write that off as dementia without looking for depression in those patients. What we think now is it's, it's kind of become a little bit pejorative in that uh, anyone who's suffered a depressive episode knows there's nothing pseudo about the dementia of it. It's kind of become reversed, unfortunately. Uh, so we, we look more at the cognitive changes at this point. But that, that was the origin of it, to get people to think about depression in seniors. And, and as I said earlier, it's never normal to be depressed. It's never the natural endpoint of anything. And sometimes people just naturally think someone should be depressed simply because they're old. And interestingly enough, Sam, you know, that's actually not the case. The incidence of depression declines as we age. It's less likely to be depressed as we get older. And even if I could understand the, the reasons why someone's depressed, I would still want treatment, whatever that treatment might be. And in um, a little while, we'll be talking about the treatment of the depressions as well. So we're coming up on a break here. And David, I appreciate your giving us an overview of depression. And when we come back from the break um, in about three minutes or so, what I'd like to focus in on is how depression is treated. So we're going to go to a break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. 
to reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to NeuroMatters. And we are back. Thank you for staying with us. Our guest is Dr. David Crumpacker, who is boarded in adult and geriatric psychiatry. He is from Dallas, Texas, and a heavily sought uh, lecturer at the national level on depression, bipolar disorder, and Alzheimer's disease. He has published. He has been an advocate for patients' rights, and um, he is leaving a, a big fingerprint on this world as he uh, does the things that he is, enjoys doing in the world of uh, geriatric psychiatry. So, David, we were talking before the break about the different types of depressive diagnoses, and I'd like to now see if we can move to the issue of treatment. How is depression treated? Certainly. Depression is treated in a variety of different ways. Certainly, pharmacologically, it can be treated, and non-pharmacologic interventions can be helpful as well. Uh, pharmacologic interventions can involve uh, different medications, such as the uh, class of medications that work on serotonin that we call the SSRIs, as well as some other medications that work on serotonin and norepinephrine in the brain can be helpful, and some even that work on a little bit of dopamine can be helpful. Those are the pharmacologic interventions. Non-pharmacologic interventions, which are equally beneficial and helpful for for people, involve some counseling. And certainly as a geriatric psychiatrist, I like to focus on that. I still do some psychotherapy. I don't think as a psychiatrist I can totally divorce myself from that and enjoy doing it. And in working with with my seniors, uh, putting things in perspective, putting their lives in perspective, coming up with tools that... uh, we, anybody can use at any stage of their lives to be helpful for depression uh, and to, to deal with life's changes can, can be beneficial. So together, those things can be helpful. It's interesting to see the change in life circumstances at different phases. You know, we uh, work hard through our adolescence to reach that number 18, and it just does not come soon enough. We work for 21, and then we start backing up when we look at the big 3-0, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's but, true. But when we talk about our, our older citizens of this country, they're in a, a um, life circumstance that is different in many ways from middle age and young adulthood, aren't they? We, they certainly are. We like to think sometimes there are a number of psychosocial changes, uh, that is, factors in their social environment. Uh, whether someone is moving and relocating to be near children and suddenly uh, being uprooted from family, friends, spiritual lives, all of those things suddenly change. Uh, uh, and that, that's an important factor that's related particularly to aging that we might not necessarily see any, in someone younger. You know, statistically, an 80-year-old is likely to have outlived some dear friends. That is certainly true, Sam, isn't it? That dealing with grief and loss. Uh, uh, you had hinted at that earlier, and I always think it's interesting in uh, having a, a senior discuss with me who's been through loss. It's highly unlikely to talk to an 80-year-old who hasn't suffered loss and where they can describe the differences between depression and grief and do it rather poignantly. Could you differentiate those two for the audience, depression and grief? 
Absolutely. Grief is a, an entirely normal reaction. I tell people that it's normal to be frustrated. It's normal to be angry, hostile, bitter, rude. It's normal to grieve, but, but never normal to be depressed. And frequently, people who are uh, grieving can say, you know, I'm, I'm terribly upset about the situation that, I, that I'm going through right now. And then their grandkids walk in the room and they can still smile and enjoy that or still look mm-hmm. forward to going out to dinner tonight. Uh, very frequently in depression, people can't point to any episode. They can't point to something and say, well, you know, gosh, it's because I'm living under a bridge, or gee, it's because my husband beats me. Mm-hmm. Most frequently, they can't point to episodes like that. They can't point to a situation. Uh, I tend to think of uh, depression as, a, as an illness in that part of the brain associated with grief, and that people experience ab- abnormal amounts of it, or inappropriate amounts of it, and pervasive amounts of it. You know, one of the challenges that I have had to deal with um, with my patients from time to time over the years is the person that has early Alzheimer's disease or even moving to the moderate stages and then loses a spouse and the difficulty of going through a grief process with the memory impairment that goes along with Alzheimer's. In in the older population, you know, I've thought many times about how isolating it must be to lose a significant degree of your vision, to lose hearing, to have decreased mobility, uh, both due to changes in the body itself, the musculoskeletal system, and also the inability to continue to drive independently. And I know that that's a very significant area of loss for older individuals. You know, it certainly is, Sam. And, and also added to that might be the, the feel of role reversal. That is, suddenly having to depend upon children uh, and feeling like the child yourself, and still knowing that you're the parent, but suddenly you, you depend upon your kids to, to drive you, to take you places, even sometimes for friends and social interaction, because you're from a different part of the country and relocated to be near your kids and have no other social outlet. And so even that role reversal can be, can be uh, a difficult thing to adjust to. I don't know what it means, but my three children grin at me when they start thinking about the role reversal that will be coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, overall, if you look at, let's say, major depressive disorder, single episode, what's the success rate for treatment? We have generally very good success rates for treatment, and perhaps 75 to 80 percent of patients who seek treatment can get a moderate degree of symptom uh, alleviation, and that's pretty good. You know, I would like to go back to a discussion of some of the medications. I remember, and I know that I'm significantly older than you are, <laughs> I remember a psychiatrist in Houston that I um, was uh, a research assistant for many years ago, and um, he, uh, where was I with that? What, what does this symptom describe in, <laughs> in an individual? <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, um, and he talked about the uh, so much of the 
early round of medications, the so-called MAO inhibitors, and what a, a bad reputation they had, but how successful they were at getting people with major depression out of uh, the uh, psychiatric hospitals. And okay. so, you know, the MAO inhibitors are just nearly never used now, um, as you know. But um, the follow-up medications from there still are used. You know, I still see in my practice people on tricyclics, for example, uh, commonly amitriptyline or, you know, Alavil, as its uh, brand name was. And what's interesting is that I see patients that have had a life time uh, in adulthood with depression, maybe recurring depressive episodes or just a continuous depressive state, who now as they come into their 70s, uh, develop memory problems because of the Elevil. Is that something that you have seen as well? It certainly is, Sam, and, and I'm glad you even point out some of the older medications. The, the newer ones that we've come up with really have not improved on efficacy. What they've improved upon is side effects. So mm-hmm. that while MAOIs are still an excellent antidepressant, and so are the tricyclic antidepressants, the side effect burden was too great, and we've improved upon that. And, and I'm glad you've pointed out that about the Elevil, about tricyclic antidepressants. Many of them cause cognitive dulling in a patient population that we're, we're, we're struggling and working hard to improve their cognition. On the topic of medications, David, would you comment on what medications are used for other conditions that can cause depression as a side effect? Certainly. In fact, that's one of the, the hallmarks of, uh, of, of a biologic psychiatry has been when we noticed that patients on a variety of medications or on different substances, it, that it affected their mood. And the thought was that if we could use that in a positive way, maybe we could help people with uh, what we used to call melancholia. So one of the very first med- uh, medications that we associated with depression was, with the, was the anti-hypertensive the blood pressure medication, reserpine. And it was noted that patients who were on reserpine also developed some profound depression. And we still use medications related to reserpine. We call them the uh, beta blockers. Mm-hmm. And they're notorious these days for, for causing or making depression worse. Some medications sometimes can make people manic. And uh, a good example of that is steroid medications, so that patients who are given steroids for a variety of reasons, an inadvertent side effect can be mania and sometimes depression with, with, with steroids. Well, that's an excellent point. And, uh, of course, antihypertensives are so much better now than they were 20 years ago. I'm sure that you've had the experiences I have had of seeing a patient who was on an antihypertensive and who did not tolerate the side effects of it, but rather than talking with their physician about it, simply stopped the medication and then had a stroke. You know, that is a very sad circumstance. It absolutely is, and that's why it's wonderful. I'm glad you pointed that out. To always talk with your healthcare provider about things, things like this, about the side effects, and to if we put our heads to, together and think about it, we can usually come up with an alternative. 
Well, you are a wealth of knowledge, and I note that, uh, and I watched a um, an online video of a lecture that you did for the Alzheimer's Association on depression in caregivers. We're going to go to a break in just a few seconds here, but when we come back from the break, David, would you talk about what uh, what you have learned about depression in caregivers, especially caregivers of persons with dementia? So we're going to go to a break now, and we'll come back and discuss that topic. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matter System provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Welcome back to the program. Our guest is Dr. David Crumpacker, a psychiatrist who practices in Dallas, Texas, and is the former uh, assistant chief of the Department of Psychiatry at the very excellent Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. And before the break, David, uh, I had mentioned a talk that you had given for the Alzheimer's Association on the topic of depression in caregivers. Would you mind to go into that a little bit? Caregiver depression is a real phenomenon that we recognize. A common consequence, in fact, of caregiving is depression. Uh, Frequently, we find that it's most often caregiving that is borne by women. I tell my patients to be kind to their daughters and to their daughters-in-law. 
because they're <laughs> the ones who pick their nursing homes, and they'll, they'll be the ones taking them to their appointments. That's a powerful uh, statement. <laughs> <laughs> it's most common during long-term treatment and transitions, so that when someone is, is living over an extended period of time at, at home or in transitions, we find things like depression coming about. Even in the absence of a history of depression, caregivers are, can be at increased risk. And sometimes we see maybe 30 to 80% of community-dwelling caregivers of dementia patients showing some symptoms of depression. Uh, increased social support of those caregivers is important. Education is important. Sometimes we found that even rather than uh, with a, a support group, uh, where it focuses on education can be as helpful as a psychotherapeutic intervention or a medical intervention. Maybe knowing what to expect, knowing what, what is in the future, all of those things can be helpful for someone. You know, the Alzheimer Association has those support groups all over the country and Alzheimer International uh, all over most of the planet at this point, certainly in the developed uh, nations. And they have been just tremendously helpful to so many individuals who have a responsibility that does not even stop while they're asleep. Uh, I had one caregiver describe it as, if there's not something that I absolutely have to be doing right now, I'm worried because I think there should be something I should be doing right now, and I'm overlooking it. So, you know, the the caregiver burden is tremendous. So what do, you, what do you say to the caregivers? How do you help them to understand what they're going through? That it is completely normal to feel frustrated. It's completely normal to feel uh, angry, but certainly not depressed. And as well as they might treat that depression, they can better care for their loved ones. In college, I was a lifeguard, and Sam, you know, the first rule of lifeguarding is to not make one tragedy two tragedies. You don't get involved unless it's a tragedy. You don't do it for fun. Caregiving is the same way. We're already dealing with one tragedy. We cannot let it become two tragedies. I tell people that the the better they take care of themselves, they'll be better able to care for their loved one, even if that means an afternoon twice a week where they could go to the library, the post office, the bank, or nothing, or sleep, not be on duty, can be wonderfully helpful for them. I like that line, don't make one tragedy become two tragedies. I'm going to use that in a talk, and people are going to think I am brilliant. <laughs> please, <you know>? do, <laughs> please do. But that really describes it so well. You know, um, many older couples have made a commitment to each other since early in their life I will never put you in a nursing home. Yes. And yet that time can come where due to health problems, due to the nature of the the uh, manifestation of the dementia, that it is simply not possible for that person to continue to provide care in the home. Absolutely. And Sam, unfortunately, I've been involved in situations in which the caregiver has gotten ill or predeceased their loved ones with Alzheimer's disease simply because they've sacrificed almost every role that they've got for being a caregiver. And that that certainly is two tragedies then. You know, the second program that I did after starting this radio program, I interviewed Howard Gretzner from Waco. Howard wrote what I believe may be the first book on uh, caregiver stress with respect to Alzheimer's disease. It was back in the 
late 1980s, if I remember right. And anyway, Howard talked a lot about the grief process, but really not understanding what you're grieving as a caregiver. You know, on the one hand, losing your mate, using your losing your life mate, but also losing time with your friends, losing time with your grandchildren, losing energy, perhaps losing some of your health. And um, it is just a, a tremendous um, burden when you just look at all the losses of a caregiver. No, it certainly is. And, and also, I, another way of phrasing it that I've done with my, my patients and caregivers is that they might have a thousand different roles in life, and they shouldn't sacrifice all of those for just one. And, and I would say the same if uh, they sacrificed every role that they had in life for any particular role, whether it's caregiving or whether it's a, an enjoyer of Humphrey Bogart movies or whether it's someone who enjoys knitting, I would say you shouldn't sacrifice all of your roles in life for just one, including caregiving. And there simply has to be a mechanism, you know. Um, I know that these, uh, what I refer to as non-Medicare home health agencies, such as um, Home Instead, Visiting Angels, there are a number of them that will have people come in and stay with the person that has dementia so that that caregiver can get regular times out of the home doing whatever would be restorative at those times. It's very important. Now, in my family, I have nine brothers and three sisters, and I don't see any of us burning out because, as I've told my dad, we only need to each take you for a month, and <laughs> and that's just less than once a year. Goodness. <laughs> but, but my dad, fortunately, he is 91 years old, and he is in great health. He, oh, he, he continues to be in great health, as does my mother in her uh, mid to upper 80s now. You never say a lady's age on the radio. <laughs> oh, of course not. I, I do know when my grandmother turned 90, she uh, she knew that I was a geriatrician, and I told her, well, I could find her another 90-year-old, and she said she'd prefer two 45-year-olds. That would be <laughs> better for her. Yes, that's good. <laughs> Well, um, we've covered a lot of different topics here. Now let's go to a discussion of depression, cognitive loss, and dementia. Yes, depression is a, a dementia. It's a, uh, that I was mentioning before. It's a subcortical dementia, and by that I mean we we generally divide dementias up into cortical and subcortical. Uh, that is where they're located in the brain, and depression is a a form of dementia. We know that uh, as in the past, when we've identified depression in seniors particularly, we found that perhaps it's prodromal for developing symptoms of dementia. That is, that we first see depression, you treat the depression, but it might be prodromal for the development of cognitive decline later on. Uh, they're tightly related. Uh, we find that patients with depression and cognitive decline, it can, it can double in frequency after, after the age of 70. And maybe 25% of patients over 70 can experience both. Depression wow, that's, and cognitive decline. That is a high percentage, and the management of that can really be complicated, both uh, from the uh, pharmacologic standpoint and from the psychosocial standpoint. It can really be quite a challenge. It, it absolutely is. Particularly, you know, we found that just uh, having uh, a dementia can increase the likelihood of depression. And it's not simply that people are depressed that they have a dementia. And uh, maybe you've seen that, that too in your practice in that understanding of depression is more of a, an existential feeling. And, and it really isn't. It's, it's, it's more than that. Even when we factor those kinds of things out of it, patients with uh, dementia 
is Alzheimer's disease show symptoms of depression. You know, with your research in Alzheimer's disease and your clinical observations, I think they probably are similar to mine. We see this disease just crawl along, or we don't see this disease crawl along at the molecular level, uh, slowly, slowly, gradually um, uh, involving more and more brain tissue in a fairly predictable distribution through the brain, but we don't see overt symptoms. We don't see memory loss or that kind of thing, but any of a number of events can happen or, or experiences or circumstances can come about that would unmask what has been developing in the brain for 20 years. And I think that uh, that depression sometimes may be a reflection of that unmasking process. Mm-hmm. I think, think you're probably right. And certainly, as you mentioned before, that uh, uh, suddenly a death of a spouse, suddenly some psychosocial changes, and we see a, a dramatic progression in that dementia when it had been occurring slowly and gradually already. Yes. Now, you have had interest in the um, APOE4 gene. Would you discuss your uh, your interest in your research there? Certainly. APOE4 is a uh, is a, uh, a gene associated with uh, some lipid pathology. That is, patients who have cholesterol or lipid problems. We found that there are three general types that we found in uh, uh, that occur very commonly in human populations, and that's APOE2, 3, and 4. The APOE3 gene is probably the wild type. That is the normal gene that we might expect. Increased Mm -hmm. copies of APOE2 can increase someone's likelihood of developing lipid pathology. Increased copies of APOE4 have been shown to to, uh, be associated with increased risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. That is a fascinating area, and of course, uh, you know, this uh, Human Genome Project is, is just amazing. I had the opportunity to sit in a lecture um, uh, on this topic in Washington when I was there oh, was five or six weeks ago, something like that. Absolutely a fascinating topic. Um, we uh, also note that many different forms of dementia may be associated with very significant psychiatric disturbance. And um, uh, there, there are so many that come to mind fairly immediately. You know, if we think of frontal temporal dementia, Pick's yeah. disease, uh, that kind of thing, and the degree of behavioral disturbance. Um, we, uh, we have about two minutes, uh, oh, I see, about one minute until the next break. Would you just discuss that briefly, and then we'll follow up on it after the break? Certainly. Most uh, neurologic pathology, or let me say it this way, many neurologic pathologies present with psychiatric manifestations, whether Huntington's disease, patients will frequently present with an episode of bipolar disorder, or whether Parkinson's disease, where patients will frequently present with depressive symptoms. Uh, a teacher of mine back in my residency said that the difference between neurologic pathology and psychiatric pathology is one can be seen on an MRI and the other can't. And perhaps that's <laughs> yeah. quite reductionistic, but certainly it's difficult to separate out the two. You had mentioned frontal temporal dementia. Patients frequently will, will present with bizarre personality changes. And it's interesting, those patients usually present faster and sooner than the Alzheimer's patients simply because of the behavioral problems. 
it becomes very, very complicated very quickly. And of course, you know, you have an interest in Lewy body disorder as well. So um, we are going to come to a break here and then we will discuss some of these more uh, challenging psychiatric symptoms that you see with the dementias and approaches to treatment as well. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Find the healer within you. Listen for Chella's Chat with host Chella Zappia. Does your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual life seem out of balance? Often this lopsided outlook is what drives depression, and that can lead to illness and other problems in your life. Chella's Chat is a discussion program featuring guest experts plus your input. All together, we'll help you understand that there is hope. Tune in to Chella's Chat every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Welcome back to the program. We are very fortunate to be having a conversation with Dr. David Crumpacker, who is boarded in both adult and geriatric psychiatry, and we've been talking about depression and dementia, and we're now going to go to the topic that um, is so challenging to people in clinical care and so heartbreaking to family members, and that is the development of more severe psychiatric disturbance in different types of dementias. David? Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, Yes, we, we had talked about um, frontal temporal dementia and uh, just briefly mentioned Lewy body disorder, Parkinson's disease, and you had made the comment that uh, many psychiatric, many neurological disorders have psychiatric manifestations very early on, and that's absolutely true. So, 
Can you talk about the hallucinations uh, in seen in various types of dementia, the delusional thinking, agitation, and things like that, and how, um, how we approach treatment of those things? Certainly. As dementias progress, particularly Alzheimer's disease, we do see things such as hallucinations, altered reality testing, delusions come about. Our, our DSM defines psychosis in a number of different ways, but it includes hallucinations, delusions, uh, and altered reality testing. As a result, we frequently use medications like antipsychotics to help in situations like that. While it's not curative, it can usually be very helpful to, con to consider treatments like that. It's not uncommon for patients to develop uh, delusions, particularly delusions of theft, and infidelity become the two most common ones that we see in varying dementias, including Alzheimer's disease. That a, a partner, an, uh, a 70-year-old uh, partner of 50 years is, is, is being unfaithful, or that someone's coming into the house and stealing my dentures and my teeth and my glasses, moving them around, stealing my medication. Those are extremely common delusions that people will, will develop. Sometimes people see things, little people outside the room, people with hats, particularly in Lewy body disease. That's not an uncommon thing to see little people, little children uh, in the room. And certainly that lack of reality testing where someone can't reason through the way other people might reason. Uh, those are extremely uh, distressing symptoms, not only for the patient, but certainly for caregivers. My, my general rule, Sam, in fact, of treatment is that if it's frightening, if it's scary, if it's overly concerning to the patient, to consider treating. If it's not, and believe me, there can sometimes be hallucinations and delusions that aren't. I had a, a lady tell me that she was convinced a man came to her window every night and serenaded her with the guitar. And the family found this very distressing, but gosh, if you've got to have a delusion, isn't that a nice one to have? <laughs> That's not a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> not at all. And in situations like that, I, I, I opt not to treat that. That was much more distressing for the family. Uh, mm -hmm. With a little education, we were able to, to move past that. But certainly if they're you frightening, know, I, I, it is I like to treat. It is interesting that uh, the hallucinations that you see in Lewy body disorder and in Parkinson's disease, which are predominantly visual, tend to be not so emotionally charged. You know, um, furry animals, children in the in the room, uh, uh, things like that. And those children and those animals can be annoying, but they're not scary and threatening. And um, when you look at the uh, major psychoses, like um, say paranoid schizophrenia, where hallucinations tend to be a lot more uh, threatening, emotionally charged, emotionally intensive, and things like that. So when you consider the difference in those two kinds of hallucinations, it makes sense to say the hallucination is not causing a problem, so let's not go to medications that you don't want to have to use in this age group. Absolutely wonderful point, Sam. Um, I often ask my patients that are going through this, are you still handling it okay? You know, I'll, I'll give them a piece of paper that says we, you know, maybe a, a letter that I'll, that I'll uh, type, type out for them that will say, uh, we talked about this at the office and we agreed that it's not real, but it seems very real to you. So just keep that in mind, you know, just little reminders that will keep the person anchored back. Yeah, wonderful point in, in that. 
and certainly sometimes some education with the family and the caregivers that there's no reason necessarily to treat this. If, if somebody's convinced that their, their mother or their father is coming to them at night and spending some time with them, why, re, why do reality testing in a situation like that? If somebody finds it comforting and reassuring, I had a woman say to me, in fact, I think she was 80, and she said, all I really want is my mother right now. And gosh, wouldn't that be something we all might want to say? Why, <laughs> That's why right. To, why try to treat that or give her reality testing? I, um, uh, as an aside, had witnessed a conversation between a father and a son in which the uh, father was convinced that his wife was alive and the son kept arguing with him, reminding her that she, she had passed away. And why do reality testing like that if it just upsets someone? That's right. It really does not matter. And and again, the challenge that I give to my caregivers, if it's not a really, really important issue, like the house is on fire, it really, <laughs> it really does not matter that much. And of course, on the topic of a person being upset by these more benign visual hallucinations, you know, when you say you may treat it, that doesn't necessarily mean treating it with atypical antipsychotics, right? It can be Absolutely. treated with an anxiolytic or, or something like that. You definitely can. And very frequently, uh, non-pharmacologic interventions can help as well. For example, someone in a, uh, in a, a novel environment, uh, 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 brand new in a nursing home, or we see this in an ICU, sometimes surrounding the patient with familiar objects can be helpful, whether it's a blanket, whether it's pictures of family, whether it's uh, items that they have at home. Sometimes that can be enough to help reorient someone or to, to combat some of those delusions and hallucinations. Certainly, and uh, you know, I've noted in my um, in my experience as well that um, a um, headlights from a car shining through a window can be misperceived. A mirror in the bedroom can cause misperceptions that can lead to hallucinations as well. So, reducing the overall visual complexity of the environment is very helpful. Well, David, I can't express to you enough how grateful I am to you on behalf of the listeners that you've taken the time to share your experience and expertise. And uh, I feel that we're very fortunate to have had you here to uh, talk about the the very complicated issues of depression and dementia, aging and depression approaches to treatment, and then some of these uh, more challenging psychiatric complications that come in some dementias. Of course, most patients with Alzheimer's disease, David, would you agree, do not develop hallucinations and delusions? That is correct. Certainly they don't. And even the ones that do, eventually that gets better and those go away. Thank you so much. And I want to let our listeners know we have uh, uh, some very excellent guests coming up. Dr. Carol Lippa from Drexel University Department of Neurology will be with us next week to discuss Lewy body dementia, a very challenging disorder and also a, a disorder that is of interest to Dr. Crumpacker. And then the following week, Dr. Ron DeVere, a neurologist from Austin, Texas, will be discussing his book, uh, which has the interesting title, Memory Loss, Everything You Want to Know But Forget to Ask. And I think that uh, most caregivers and families will find that to be very appropriate. Other programs coming up down the line include what I hope will be a thorough and helpful discussion about communicating with individuals who have had a decline in their ability to communicate. And uh, I have just gotten a commitment from an, a nationally recognized attorney to talk with us about elder law issues. And these involve things like um, 
uh, power of attorney and estate issues that may come up, trust issues and things like that, and also the very unfortunate circumstances that have to do with competency and uh, someone being allowed or not allowed to make decisions for their own life and and their own uh, preferences. So some interesting programs coming up. We look forward to having you back in these programs. I'm thankful to you for being with us. I'm Dr. Sam Brinkman on Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's Disease. We will talk next week. Thank you for listening to Neuromatters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.